Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. There is indeed very little that I would thank Freud for. But if there is anything at all, it would be the existence of talk therapy, which is uh, simply uh, a very useful thing, provided, however, that the therapist attends to what is actually bothering the patient, attends to the life circumstances of the patient, gives common sense, practical advice. Freud did none of these things. What he wanted to do with all of his patients was to assimilate them to his theory and to use them as illustrations of this theory. The reason that I hesitate to say that we should be grateful to Freud for talk therapy is that he was not, in fact, the first talk therapist. He was not the most successful by any means of his time. There were others. Uh, there was a man, for example, in Switzerland named Paul Dubois, who was very much the um, forerunner of what we would now call cognitive therapy much more commonsensical, much more sympathetic than Freud's. However, precisely because Freud managed to convince the world that he was the first psychotherapist and the, and the first real student of the unconscious, it's true that people today think of Freud as having founded talk therapy. My colleagues are of the opinion that I make a diagnosis of hysteria far too carelessly when graver things are in question. The curious words of Austrian doctor, writer and the founder of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What makes for a great therapist? And is psychoanalysis a pseudoscience? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to tackle those questions by unpacking the life and legacy of one of the greatest cultural icons of the 20th century, Sigmund Freud. This evening, I'm joined by American essayist, writer and literary critic Frederick Cruz, whose latest book, Freud, The Making of an Illusion, has just been published by Profile Books, where Fred argues... Psychoanalysis was supposed to bring insight and liberation to the repressed. But its own practitioners, so long as they remained loyal to Freud, trembled in the fear of his rot and collapsed into Orwellian groupthink. Fred goes on to argue Freud doesn't match up well with the liberation he has been taken to represent. So who and what was Sigmund Freud? What exactly was his philosophy of the unconscious mind? And do his ideas and theories stand up? Hello, my name is Frederick Cruz. I taught English at the University of California at Berkeley for 36 years. Back in the 1960s, I was uh, enamored of the works of Sigmund Freud, mostly because I thought they were relevant to the study of literature. But also in the 1960s, I began to develop doubts about that theory. And by the year 1980, I was a complete skeptic on the topic. And since then, I published some very controversial works about Freud and about psychoanalysis. And I suppose that by now, I'm considered the chief enemy of the entire movement. 
Um, things won't get any better in that respect because I've recently published a, a book called Freud, The Making of an Illusion, a, a very large biography of the first half of Freud's life, which suggests that there was no basis, in fact, for any of his ideas. Really well done on the biography, Fred. I have to say it was a fascinating read and it challenged me on so many different levels, not just its length, but some of the ideas and criticisms that you present. I might start off with a big wide open question, if that's OK. And it's an obvious one to a degree. Um, was Freud any good as a doctor? <laughs> well, Freud was very uh, candid about his complete absence of ability as a doctor. He had never wanted to be a doctor. He was kind of forced into the profession. Um, he wanted to be, well, first of all, he wanted to be a philosopher or a novelist, a literary person of some sort. But then he decided that he had to get a medical degree. Even though he achieved that degree, he did not want to practice medicine at all. He wanted to be a physiologist and, he, and an anatomist. And he was quite good with a microscope. But he was advised that if he ever wanted to make enough money to marry his sweetheart, he would have to become a family physician. And he did so very reluctantly. And again and again in his autobiographical writings, he pointed out that he had no affinity for this profession. He didn't really like people very much. He didn't like sick people in particular. And he didn't have the kind of uh, basic sympathy that he thought a doctor should have. So... Uh, yeah, the answer to your question is he was not suited to be a doctor. And if we study his doctoring closely, we find that the record contains quite a few uh, horrible uh, fiascos. Yeah, and we might get into some of the case studies later. Halfway through the biography, you pitch up an extraordinary interesting question. You, you ask, did uh, Freud fancy himself as the Sherlock Holmes of the unconscious? And it got me thinking, you know, in one way, he was a storyteller. Absolutely. In fact, he was a great storyteller. Uh, there's nothing in my you know, takedown of Freud that suggests that he didn't have extraordinary literary talent. He absolutely did. But the talent was based or was spent upon presenting himself as a great uh, psychological detective. And essentially, that's what Arthur Conan Doyle did. And interestingly enough, uh, Freud's real favorite author was not Goethe or Shakespeare or Dante. It was precisely Conan Doyle. He used to stay up at night reading the Sherlock Holmes stories. And it's quite interesting, in one of his letters to C.G. Jung, he mentions that he was tricking one of his patients into thinking that he was deducing Sherlock Holmes style all sorts of things about her that, in fact, he already knew. He took he took delight in this. Um, toward the end of his life, his maid, uh, Paula Fichtel, said that uh, he was constantly reading Sherlock Holmes and, and other detective stories. This was a significant part of Freud's identity. Uh, he was really a writer of detective fiction with himself as the hero. And this is one of the reasons why he was such a compelling figure and remains a compelling figure to many 
people. They love him the way they love Sherlock Holmes. One of the most interesting parts of the biography is all the different letters that you present between uh, Freud and his sweetheart. And, um, you know, we got a very um, uh, raw Freud, uh, a very anxious, a very frustrated Freud. And, you know, at times we get this very vulnerable and then at other times it's kind of petulant Freud. And it's not the kind of idea that anybody I would imagine would have of this great towering um, intellectual might in history. Because Freud Freud is, is an icon out there. He's seen as, you know, he's such an influencer on so many different levels. It's hard to see him as this kind of vulnerable man and this man who can get so tricky. Well, I, I quite agree with everything you've said there. Um, when we think of a, of a great scientist, a great discoverer, one of the traits we imagine that he, or by the way, she must have, is an ability to keep emotions at arm's length to be objective, not to be swayed by the feelings of the moment. But Freud was exactly that kind of person. And as you've said, in his, in his long engagement with Martha Bernays, which lasted for four and a half years, uh, he showed himself constantly to be the victim of his emotions. And um, what he wanted to do in, in life was simply to to succeed, to become wealthy, to become well-known. And he uh, tried again and again to do that. But one of the things that held him back was the fact that his personal relations always trumped his objectivity. So it was, it was extremely difficult for him to concentrate on a problem without feeling that he was... Um, vulnerable to the emotions of somebody in his immediate circle at the same time. He seems to have been completely obsessed with ideas around sexuality and also on homosexuality. And it's, he almost seems blindsided, it, or certainly in how you present, uh, you know, some of the case studies, that he kind of went in with an idea and, he, you know, unshakably wanted a certain fact and that was it. Uh, absolutely. Um, at any given point in his career, he would have an obsessive idea, a certain syndrome that he was looking for, especially regarding the, the syndrome of, of hysteria. And one patient after another would strike him as illustrating his own latest idea. He had a, he had a difficult time objectifying sufficiently so that he could gear his therapy to what was actually being presented before his eyes. Now, you mentioned sexuality and homosexuality. It's particularly interesting that Freud in his early life was very much a prude, and we see this in his early letters to his fiancée. But in the year 1884, he discovered cocaine. I mean, he didn't discover it. He discovered its, its relevance to him. And particularly in the month of April 1884, he started taking cocaine immediately thereafter, he became an advocate of it as a kind of all-purpose uh, medical panacea. And interestingly enough, his letters to his fiancée started to become rather erotic. I think that Freud, uh, Freud's whole interest in sexuality comes from his introduction to cocaine. But on the subject of homosexuality, this is extremely interesting. You know, most of our ideas about Freud come from a, a monumental biography by Ernest Jones that was published between 1953 and 1957. 
that book was written with Anna Freud very much looking over uh, Jones's shoulder. So in many respects, it's a work of propaganda. But if you read it very carefully, you'll find that from time to time, Jones says things that Anna Freud would not have wanted him to say. And one of them has to do precisely with homosexuality. At one point, uh, Jones remarks that he found Freud to be very effeminate in his mannerisms. And at another point, he says very explicitly, Freud's temperament was not exclusively heterosexual. Well, these are these are bombshell statements. Um, they they alert us to a pattern of male relationships in Freud's life that turn out to be extremely important for his intellectual development. So really, we we have to start reconsidering Freud in the light of the worry that he felt about not being exclusively heterosexual. It tormented him, and his so-called self-analysis toward the end of the 1890s was very much involved with this question. It seems from some of the letters that you present in the biography that Freud was, you know, at certain times of the day, got very frustrated with his um, with his patients. And, you know, they were playing a serious amount of money to see him. He was the star, our celebrity psychoanalyst. And, you know, he had a, a very high rolling uh, range of um, patients. But it seems from what you've written and some of the letters that you cite that um, they just frustrated him at the best of times. Well, Let's ask the question, did Freud ever cure anybody of anything? Um, you can't say for sure that he didn't, but one would imagine that if he had, a great deal would have been made of it. If we read the famous published case histories, they are not cases of cure at all. Most often they are cases that were truncated because of frustration by the patient with Freud. Um, again and again, it seems that Freud's patients walked out on him at least in the 19th century they did, they found him to be a fanatic who was obsessed with his own theories and who was trying to bully them into admitting that they had repressed certain memories or had certain experiences which they felt they hadn't had. Now, in the 20th century, this changed because Freud, through his writings, became very famous. Everybody wanted to be treated by Freud, and people assumed that they were getting great wisdom from him, but were they cured of any syndromes? Uh, Freud's scientific claims were that he had the sovereign cure for every form of some psychological trouble, but he simply didn't, and the record shows that he didn't. There's a, a great deal of fakery there. So what actual evidence did he present to back up his ideas? Because, so, you know, some of his um, ideas in relation to the unconscious mind, transference, um, ideas in relation to hysteria and so on, have really dominated intellectual discourse for the last century. So I'm just wondering, what did he back it up at all with? You know, Freud's ideas dominated because Freud himself succeeded in convincing the world that he was the great student of the unconscious who had broken through and, and uncovered secrets that mankind had been hiding from itself, as it were, for all these centuries. Uh, so the ideas kind of got a free ride on the reputation of Freud himself as a, an almost supernatural figure. But if we look at Freud the way we would look at any other doctor or any other theorist and ask, where's the evidence for your ideas? What what actually did you discover? When did you do it? 
who was there at the time, who corroborated it, how did you test your ideas against uh, competing ideas, and so on. We come up with absolutely nothing. Freud's complete works, in translated into English, come to 23 volumes and an index volume. They're, they're enormous. If we look through those 23 volumes in search of evidence in the sense that it would be construed by anybody but Freud, we don't find any. What we find is Freud's assurances that he had done such and such, that he had discovered such and such, that psychoanalysis has repeatedly corroborated such and such ideas. These are all personal assurances. The actual evidence that might make them palatable to someone who was not entranced with Freud himself is completely missing. In these 23 volumes, there is no evidence whatsoever. I'm just wondering, Fred, how do you understand, let's say, some of the big ideas that he presented? So let's say, or what, what he gathered from his case studies, let's say ideas in relation to transference or maybe free association, all that kind of stuff and repression. Okay. Some of the big ones, you know, kind of the big juicy ones that we all hear about. Okay, let's say transference, which is one of the very few Freudian concepts that's still very current among practicing psychoanalysts. For them, transference is just a fancy word for the emotional relationship that subsists between a patient and a doctor. And in modern psychoanalysis, it's assumed that the analysis will be an analysis of the transference. That is, that the the feelings that the patient has toward the therapist will be very significant for understanding the total psychological structure of the patient. Now, This started out very differently with Freud. He was not interested in transference at all until he realized how badly his cases were going, particularly the so-called Dora case, which was in 1901, although he wrote it up in 1905. Dora was a young woman with uh, a very tangled family history. Freud assumed that she was a hysteric. She disagreed with him in everything that he said and eventually walked out on him. And Freud decided that it was her emotional entanglement with him that had caused the therapy to fail. And so transference for Freud was an obstacle to therapy. It wasn't what the therapy should be about. It was an obstacle. But as he thought about it more, he decided that the transference was, in fact, a reenactment of of infantile relationships, the, the child's relation to his or her parents in a sexual sense. And so the, the, the patient would fall in love with the doctor because of the so-called Oedipus complex, that is, the child's having fallen in love with the opposite-sex parent and wanting to get rid of the uh, same-sex parent. Now, this is an extremely dogmatic idea, and the actual function of it in Freud's therapy was to assume that anything that went wrong with his therapy was a result of the transference, a result of the fact that the patient was still hung up on these early infantile relationships. And I think you can see right away the problem with this. It meant that Freud was always right. If something went wrong with the therapy, it was the fault of the patient's transference onto him not perhaps the fault of his mistaken inferences. 
So this is one of the things that's really, really terrible about Freud's psychotherapy is that he always assumed that he was right. And he had theoretical concepts at the ready to explain away the failures of his analyses. Fred, uh, you go into quite a lot of detail on one of uh, Freud's iconic cases. That was of um, Anna von Lieben. Can you talk to me about that case? Because it's really, really interesting. It's quite shocking and frightening in parts, but it makes for a very interesting reading. Well, I think this is the, this is the key case which the public ought to know the most about, and in fact, it's the one that they know the least about. Anna von Lieben was an extraordinarily wealthy an extraordinarily eccentric uh, woman in Vienna who was one of Freud's very early psychological patients. He assumed that she was a hysteric, and she did have a great deal of uh, weird symptoms and eccentricities. He treated her over a number of years. Like all of his treatments, it failed. She ended up thinking that he was just out for her money, um, and she was quite bitter about it. But she was a very interesting person with psychological ideas of her own. And it turns out that many of Freud's psychological ideas came straight from Anna von Lieben. The idea of repression, the idea of sexual causes of neurosis, for example. Freud said to his best friend, Wilhelm Fleiss, that Anna von Lieben was his teacher, his, his lehrerin, his female instructor. And he and she together worked out the idea of trying to go back in memory to childhood events that had caused uh, repression and, and, the, and the activation of symptoms. So um, the public doesn't know that Freud acquired some of his basic psychological ideas from a patient who already had these ideas about herself. Now, the therapy of Anna von Lieben was very much unlike what Freud later uh, promulgated as proper psychoanalytic behavior because um, she would have so-called hysterical fits and he would literally roll around on the floor with this extremely fat woman uh, trying to get her to, to uh, cease her fits. But what uh, was really going on was the following. Anna von Lieben was a morphine addict, and her morphine addiction was controlled by Freud himself. When he was trying to calm her down, it was after injecting her with morphine, and what she gradually did was simply to become uh, sleepy. But because she was a morphine addict, she had a great number of symptoms of such an addict, and Freud interpreted those symptoms as the symptoms of hysteria. So he massively misinterpreted a condition which he himself was fostering. Um, it was simply her withdrawal pangs that were the key to understanding her case. So there, there was a, you know, a drastic botch of this case. But what's most interesting about it is that Freud was learning from her what the things that he was learning were not necessarily true, but he was gullible toward her, and he failed to account for the main feature of her case, which was simply 
drug addiction. But you could argue there, Fred, that we're all improvising to a degree in our own jobs and we're all learning, you know, learning, actively learning every day. So some aspects of that, you could say, well, you could kind of make allowances for certain aspects, but clearly not as a, as a trained doctor missing the idea of addiction and drugs. That's a big no-no. Uh, well, it certainly is. And, um, you know, if we think of a scientific or medical pioneer, we think of someone who takes a hypothesis and who tests it 